Welcome to Sexology, a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure. And now, with this week's episode, your host, clinical psychologist, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Hello there. You are listening to episode 207 of Sexology Podcasts. I'm your host, Dr. Nazanin Moali. Our guest today is Lucy Rowett, and she's going to tell us about her story of how she changed her relationship with her sexuality after she left the evangelical Christian community. But before I tell you about this episode, I wanted to remind those of you that haven't downloaded my ebook that three months ago I wrote this ebook about how to increase your sexual desire and in this ebook I talk about the tips and tricks that you can implement to help yourself cultivating a stronger sense of sexual desire the book is particularly focused on women but the content and concept provided can be useful for both both genders and all genders I would say as I mentioned our guest is Lucy Robert. Uh, she's a sexologist and intimacy coach based in Brighton, UK. She describes herself as an evan- evangelical sexologist and pleasure advocate who is passionate about empowering women to li- liberate their bodies and souls from the shackles of shame. She uses a fusion of neck up and neck down approaches, combining sexology and accurate sexuality education with somatic practices, Taoism, Tantra, and embodiment. In this episode, we specifically talk about how can you give yourself permission to explore your sexuality without feeling dirty. And she teaches us some good specific strategies that you can implement today to challenge and change your relationship if you grew up in a conservative community. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Lucy Rouet. Hello and welcome to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to welcome Lucy Rouet in our show. Lucy, welcome to our show. Hi, Nazanin. So lovely to be here. I am very excited about this opportunity of having this conversation with you. I know you're an intimacy coach, you're a sexologist, but also you're very open about your experience of how you got into this field, which I think is fascinating. So Thank tell you. us a little bit about your experience growing up. So, you know, one thing that I am really interested in is the intersection of people coming from conservative or faith communities and sexuality, because I grew up, so as you can probably tell by my sexy British accent, I grew up in the UK. I am British. I was born in London, grew up in London. But my fa- I grew up within the church. So all of my family is very religious. I think all of them are, even my extended family. And I'm 31 now. So I grew up in the 90s and noughties, which is sort of when evangelicalism and purity culture was really kind of packing a punch, so to speak. So I grew up in London, very much in the church. And one thing that's really key is when you are, I grew up going to church, you know, I don't have a memory of never going to church. I I literally grew up there from babyhood until in my late teens. 
And when you are a teenager and you go through youth group, the stuff that's available to teenagers, young people is very evangelical. So I became very involved in the evangelical movement. I um, had my own sort of faith conversion or spiritual experience when I was I think 12 at a thing called Spring Harvest. So it was very much my life. And then, you know, I'm 31 now. I've had a long journey since then, including with chronic illness and recovery and faith deconstruction. And as part of that journey of faith deconstruction, chronic illness recovery, of course, I ended up having to work on my own sexuality, which then took me to training as a sex coach and sexologist. So it's a very abridged version of my life. Well, I love it. That's so fascinating. For our listeners that they're not familiar with some of the overall concept of evangelical Christianity, can you tell us a little bit more? I know that you're not a theologist, but can you well, tell us a little bit about what, what does that entail? Okay, so I really, really need to hope I don't do, I hope I do this justice because it's been a while since I've been involved in that world. One of the tenets of evangelical Christianity, as far as I can remember, is that the Bible is the infallible word of God. And that is that. And it's the Bible or nothing. The Bible is absolutely infallible, even though the Bible is very varied. And also, evangelical Christianity or evangelicalism, it comes from the USA. So I know that a lot of your listeners are in the USA and evangelicalism has spread all over the world because that's the point to be an evangelist. But that specific type of Christianity very much comes from the US, which some people comes from Southern Baptist. There's, there's, all, there's a whole history behind it. But in evangelicalism, it's very, like some people call it happy clappy. Have you, have you used that word? In the, have you heard of that? No, sentence? I haven't. But that sounds like a fun, fun term. What well, does that mean? <laughs> happy clappy. It's, um, maybe it's just a British saying. It's like a lot of evangelical churches. So the song, the worship music, because it's called worship music, mm-hmm. not hymns. It's very modern. It's very, very modern. So the, the songs are very modern. Um, I say happy clappy. So they get people dancing and singing. Oh, like, there's this, oh it, it is. I mean, it's. It's very, um, you know, there's definitely crosses over, crossovers with like Pentecostal, with Methodist. It's kind of a, I say with the evangelicalism, it's like a fusion of all the different kind of Protestant styles. It's, you know, I'm not a theologian. I probably could be getting this wrong. But a big part of evangelicalism is that it's very modern. It's very fresh. And it's very much, we are spreading the word of God. And that is what is important. The Bible is infallible. You can only be saved by Jesus Christ. And here's a conversion prayer for you. It's not the kind of church service that your grandmother went to when you were growing up. It's very loud. It's very bright. It's very hip. It's very modern in many ways because it's meant to be. It's meant to be appealing to a younger generation. It's meant to be more palatable. So, oh, yeah, Jesus is cool. But this is cool. This is fun. I can get on with this. That's one of the tenets of evangelicalism. There's many other parts as well. Well, interesting. And I know that probably, and I'm not familiar as much with with evangelical uh, Christianity, but I know that it's coming from a purity culture. So, yes. and I know with that connection, it comes specific brand of, it can be connected with specific brand of sexuality. So can you tell us about some of the purity culture myth that you can imagine it impacts one's sexuality? I mean, purity culture is a, so when, when you think about the history of purity culture, it has a very interesting history, because if you remember, especially the history of the evangelical church around the 1920s, 1940s, originally the, the Southern Baptist church, they were very racist. So they wanted to, they wanted to have theological permission to segregate between whites and blacks. 
And then eventually they had a conference and they realized, okay, we, we can't really do this anymore. So what else can we get mad about? And then in the 1960s, we, <laughs> because this is the thing, it was very much from that mind, especially like Southern Baptist, Methodist. It's like, what have, have you ever heard of the term fire and brimstone? No. It's when uh, you have, if you Google like these different Southern Baptist pastors and preachers, how they like to thump their pulpits and stamp around and they get very, very fiery and preachy. And they like to get mad about things, to get passionate about things. And you do not compromise on the word of God. And that's that. So, for example, an early pioneer of evangelicalism is Billy Graham. So he was the one who took his crusade, even though it wasn't a crusade, around the world, converting people in their thousands. I forgot to say that a big part of evangelicalism is you have these massive churches or worship sessions where it's it can be hundreds or even thousands of people in arenas and you're getting them into a very hysterical state and getting them to confess and repent. It's very hysterical. So I digress. Purity culture, in the 1960s, you had the sexual revolution, which caused many laws to change. You also had Roe versus Wade in the US. And of course, for a lot of very religious folk, it was like, oh my oh my lordy lord, that is terrible. And that's when they started to have a counterculture of, okay, the world's become too sexual. We're going to go the opposite way and focus on purity. And it really kind of reached its its zenith around the 80s and 90s. So um, I follow a guy now called Josh Harris, and he wrote one of the books. He released a documentary a few years ago kind of as an apology for the book, he wrote a book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which was a kind of, it was a very popular book within that movement of basically that you're not dating, you're only courting, you're dating with the intention to marry and that's that. And I'm not saying he, he was not the founder of the purity culture, but his book came at just the right moment and it, it was very, very popular. Interestingly enough, he released a documentary a few years ago called I Survived, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, addressing the harms that the book did. But in essence, purity culture, it's sex equals bad. Sex is only between a man and wife. And that's the the basis of it. But there are so many messages that sex is bad, wrong, dirty and disgusting. Save it for someone you love. I'm kind of crediting Dr. Marty Klein there. But it's this overall message that sex is bad. Masturbation is bad. It's wrong. Keep yourself pure. Morals, purity and associating purity and morality with your body and your sexuality to the point where, you know, how you dress, especially with how, how girls and women dress, how you behave, how you compose yourself. And a lot of purity culture is how dangerous sex is, only premarital sex, obviously, and only sex between a husband and wife. You know, we had so many analogies of like, you know, a piece of chewing gum that everyone's chewed up. Oh, I heard two, that one before. <laughs> yeah. And another one I heard was you get, you get two wet pieces of paper and you stick them together. When you pull them apart, they're still half stuck to each oh, other. Oh, uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And basically, also combine this, that uh, evangelicalism is very popular for young people, especially teenagers. And what we know about, you know, teenage brain development and psychological development, you tend to see the world as very binary. And so it's very easy to take on this very simplistic message. Sex is wrong. It's bad. It's just the whole world has gone to has gone to sin. And it's very exclusionary and that, you know, you must not be of the world. You must be of God and the world is bad. And also, I grew up in the UK. I grew up in London. I grew up in a I didn't grow up in a segregated community. So I was 
in the world, so to speak. And you know, even in the noughties, there's still a lot of sexualization in music videos and movies and everything. And of course, then we're then taught to think of that as terrible and wrong and dangerous and dirty. So it, again, it creates that feeling of separation. In essence, it's that sex is bad. Your body is bad. All desire is wrong. It's all terrible. It's so, so bad. It will make God very angry at you to the point where you don't even realize it until you start to heal from it, that any time that you have a desire, which is, of course, an ungodly desire and lust equals bad, you must like, you know, smash it down, sit on it. No, nope, wrong, bad. Do not have these ungodly desires. And yeah, basically. <laughs> well, I love that. I can totally relate to what you're saying about your story. Our listeners, they know that I grew up in Iran, although my family was mm-hmm very and are very modern my mom is that kind of poster picture woman of like pre-revolution women in iran very modern but i grew up in the midst of kind of islamic revolution and in our school we had this compulsory religious studies and i Mm -hmm. could i can relate to the duality that you're talking about that like you're feeling okay lustful thoughts are bad and you shouldn't think about sex and and then as a teenager you're raging with hormones and (laughs) it's just like how can you navigate that like something that's natural that's part of who you are and then there is this message of if you have have this thought, then you're impure. And that it yeah. sets people for uh, feeling horrible about themselves. So tell me what was your journey of at what point you decided that this is not the right path for me? I think I also want to piggyback on, again, the word impure, because if we think of the connotation of impure, then it means somehow dirty. So therefore, from having thoughts that are impure, my thoughts are dirty, therefore I am dirty. It's very easy to then really internalize this dirty, impure, wrong message about yourself. I remember, again, when I was a teenager, I was a normal teenager in the respect that I started to feel desire. And of course, then feeling that deep shame of starting to have sexual fantasies as a teenager. And I remember watching a movie or like a TV show or something, and I love a sex scene would come on. And I thought there was something deeply wrong with me. I was a pervert for getting aroused looking mm-hmm. at those, you know, love scenes on TV, which are definitely not porn, but, you know, couple in bed, getting it on. And I've been thinking, oh, my God, there's something wrong with me. I'm getting really aroused by this. And now I know there wasn't. And like, you know, I, I was at Christian camp, you know, and there was a joke that you learn the dirtiest jokes at Christian camp, which is absolutely <laughs> true. It's absolutely true. You do. I remember there was a guy sitting topless because it was the summer. And I remember sitting next to him and feeling really aroused and hot and bothered. I'm like, oh my God, is there something wrong with me? So yeah, it's really deeply ingrained. So, I mean, again, my story is quite long. So it ties into when I was 14, I got ill with chronic fatigue syndrome or ME. And I had many years in my teens and early 20s of being in and out of various different hospitals, care homes, and it was pretty traumatic. And of course, during that time, I was still a Christian, but I was definitely still struggling with my faith because, you know, I'd had people praying for me. I'd had, you know, the laying of hands, God will heal you, blah, 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 blah. And I guess the seeds were being sown that I was feeling very, very angry, very resentful. 
And I was also having a lot of different therapy and interventions, of course, for my health. And I think one of the, the things that started to sow that seed was, well, my therapy, thera- I was having different treatments. and They were saying you need to learn to trust yourself and love yourself. And the Christianity I was being exposed to was, no, don't trust yourself. Don't love yourself. You're worthless. You are nothing without Jesus. You should not love yourself. And I was at this like, oh, what do I do? <laughs> because I, I, I really would like to get better. <laughs> and I also, you know, it's like if me uh, recovering is a condition for loving myself or rejecting Jesus, I don't really know what I'm supposed to do here. And it's interesting because maybe to some listeners who are Christian listening to this may think, well, this is absolutely ridiculous, Lucy. But this is what I was taught and what I was exposed to. And Certainly my mum, because my parents are still religious, but they're not evangelical. And what I tell my mum now, she's like, well, that's ridiculous as well. What they told you was very harmful. And it was also, I read a book, I think back in 2005, by a guy who'd recovered from ME. And he talked about his own experience with people who are Christian and talking into the hypocrisy. And I was thinking, yeah, I agree with that. He's right. I don't, you know, and, that, and so there was these little grains of these little seeds. And I think what really came to it, I was really struggling at this point. I was confined to a bed, living in a care home, which is another story in itself. And it was actually the leader of the school Christian group who came around to pray with me. And it was after that that I gave myself, I know, I mean, I haven't spoken to him about it since. I really want to. He came around to pray with me. And it was at that point I thought something I was able to let go. And I said, actually, I'm going to give the Christianity that I know a rest. I'm just going to put it to one side. I'm not denouncing it. I'm just going to put it down. And I decided to look into everything I was told was the devil. So, you know, everything, you know, it's interesting because within Christianity, they, they teach you about what's the devil. And there are many things that are evil and sinful, even though love knows no fear. You know, you're not supposed to fear when you have God, but... So I was Googling and researching and went down the whole Google rabbit hole of spirituality. And it was like um, a light bulb switched on. And so that started my journey of faith deconstruction. And also at that time, it was, you know, I was confined to a bed and I was really horny. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> I was really horny. It's like, you know, it's, I think I was at this point where I couldn't do very much. And I was at this point, you know, I don't care. I've got nothing. I'm going to have loads of sexual thoughts and fantasies because I literally can't do anything else and I have nothing left. I don't care anymore. So I was having all these different like pornographic scenes within my head and all these fantasies because I couldn't really move that much. And it was, I, I, I stopped giving a crap anymore. And so I was having my own kind of sexual revolution. I remember I was starting to explore, I say dating. Again, I was still confined to a bed, but being attracted to men and allowing myself to be attracted to men without the concept of them being Christian, because of course I was really only supposed to date Christian guys before that. And it was interesting, that exploration. I still remember when I first started self-pleasuring and because I never did that before. We weren't supposed to do that you know, this is wrong, self-pleasuring, especially for girls and women, that was completely unheard of. You know, it was interesting because we knew that Christian boys would wank, but (laughs) Christian girls, there's no such thing. Well, certainly not that I remember. And even if, if you did, it meant you were somehow like some disgusting, slutty, horrible person. And I didn't really know how to self-pleasure either. Cause again, I wasn't taught. 
And so I remember it like, you know, first, I think like, I bought a bullet vibrator off mm-hmm. like a, like a sex, you know, the, they're, the, they're the first vibrators you buy that are like uh-huh. the really small, you know, the small ones, the tame ones. I remember buying that <laughs> and it arriving in the mail and being like, oh, I have, I have a vibrator. <laughs> it's really small. Oh my God. And, you know, exploring self-pleasuring and still being terrified that God was watching me through the curtains or uh, like even my dead grandfather was watching me from the spirit oh, wow. world. Yeah, it was, a, uh, and I've spoken to other women about this as well, who also come from faith or conservative communities. And it was the same story of when they first started to have orgasms or self-pleasure or just generally experience sexual pleasure that somehow God is going to walk in through the window and like strike you down and that, you know, that doesn't really make you feel very sexy. Or very <laughs> right? I'm surprised you were able to finish. <laughs> I was thinking my grandfather I, was like looking at me. <laughs> that, that was, it was really was, challenging. That was really difficult. <laughs> it was like, look, granddad, please don't look. I'm really sorry, but I'm not sorry at all. <laughs> and um, also the care home I was living in, it was a very interesting place as well. And so obviously I wasn't surrounded by Christian folk because growing up and my circle of friends were pretty much all Christian. If I, if I remember now, most of my, all of my close friends were all Christian and I was now living in a care home in a different part of London. And I was kind of a bit more separated from them, from my church friends. And I was surrounded by all these people that before I would have been told or told myself that they're sinful, you know, that they are, they're not Christian, therefore they're not going to heaven and blah, blah, blah. And it was like, think, you know, my eyes started to be opened more and more, like, you know, the thing when you grow up, you start to see more of the world. Because again, when you're a teenager, you tend to see the world as very binary. It's either this or that. And we know this is part of teenage psychological development. So yeah, that was, and then I, I sort of, I looked, I found like the Gnostic gospels and I got into Tantra, you know, I think it's, I think Tantra and sacred sexuality are really wonderful for people coming from faith or Christian or conservative backgrounds. Cause it's, it was like, oh, actually my sexuality and spirituality don't have to be divorced. They can be one and the same. And that was a huge healing for me that, you know, you can, you can either be spiritual or sexual, but not both. It's like, oh, so yeah, that was, and then, um, this is a long story. Um, oh, I love this story. <laughs> yeah. And then, um, I did my first ever conscious sexuality retreat in 2014 and I had not traveled before then. And this was a retreat in the middle of Finland in the middle of winter. I didn't know anybody there apart from one guy I'd been on a date with once. <laughs> so, you know, and I went there and it was, it was amazing and it blew me open. Certainly looking back now, there are some aspects of it that I think were unsafe and I think could have been done a lot better. Certainly the world of you know, Tantra, Neo-Tantra, conscious sexuality, there's, it's certainly having a lot of reckoning at the moment with boundary violations and lack of consent awareness, lack of trauma awareness, like really wonky boundaries on behalf of the teachers. And, you know, I don't know where the teacher's at now, what what their stance is now, but back then there's certainly things that could have gone really, really wrong. At the same time, it was a really powerful experience for me. But I do remember coming back 
to Eastbourne, where I was living at the time, which is on the south coast of the United Kingdom. And I think for two weeks, I was in like, in like an altered state of reality. <laughs> and then that kind of kickstarted my journey. So I was doing different Tantra workshops and reading this. And I was doing, because as part of leaving Christianity and also recovery from chronic fatigue syndrome, it, recovery is it's a whole process. It's a growing up process. It's learning how to feel safe doing things again. And, you know, I was well enough to start wanting to study and it was okay. What do I want to fill my time with? And so I went full on the woo wagon and did a diploma in psychic awareness and holistic healing. Like, you know, the complete, everything I was told was like satanic and the devil and everything. I went completely into it. I love it. (laughs) You know, it's like, I think when when you come and I, I see this now with people who've left you know, conservative, like either faith communities or even cults where you kind of have to ricochet to the other extreme, where if you're coming from one extreme, you kind of, when you come out of that, you kind of have to ricochet to the other side, you know, just so you can find your middle ground. So, you know, from one kind of repression, I went completely the other way, full into the woo and the everything spiritual. And it was in that that I, again, wanted to work more with sexuality. I was doing my own work around it. And I was working with my own recovery coach at the time, doing recovery programs of ME, chronic fatigue, and part of it was life purpose. And it's something that I'm really grateful for because I've never actually been employed by an employer. Everything I've done to earn money has been my own business, my own work, which I'm really, really grateful for. And then I, I think I, I can't remember, I was doing freelance blogging and writing. And at the time I had a small business making perfume. It's really eclectic. And that's when I came across sex coaching. So that's when I, I took the training with Dr. Patty at Sex Coach U. And it's not just that. I've done all sorts of things since then and going into the world of sexology. And it's not just a training itself. It's being in communities, being in groups of people, being in physical spaces with people, which we don't have with COVID now. But where it's, it's sex positive, where you can openly talk about your fantasies and desires and de-shaming. And it, it was just like... Wow, it was a huge turnaround for me. Well, what a beautiful story, Lucy. And I think uh, you're very courageous that you got, you got out of this. Like you had a great critical thinking and thinking about, okay, this is not working. This is not serving me. And then I, I pursued this kind of alternative path. And I hear that you really lean into this opposite side that was giving you pleasure. And I, I think that requires lots of courage. And I know that you are quite young and this happens when, when you were you said like in 20s and I work with yeah. many clients that they are coming to me. They are coming from a conservative background and mm. the impact of kind of sex negative culture kind of embedded in them. And it's they're really yeah. struggling, although they left the faith, they're no longer affiliated with with those beliefs and ideas. And it seems like you you work through those struggles. Not only you work through it, you're helping other people to work through it. So tell us how can one challenge this negative sex messages? What are some of the kind of early steps that people need to do to take to kind of like get over this challenge? This is a really interesting question because my first instinct is get educated. And that is in the simply learning about sexuality, not from a perspective of sexual health and STIs, but actually learning about the human body, but not from a faith perspective. So 
you know, reading books for me, like from Betty Dodson and Gina Ogden, and just starting to get another perspective so that you can start to really, because when you're challenging these negative beliefs, you need to know what they are in the first place, because you don't know what you don't know. It's like a fish swimming in water. You don't see what you don't see. You have to be shown what beliefs are harmful and why they are harmful and how they are affecting you. Because when you're brought up in a very sex negative culture, you don't, you know that something doesn't feel right. You know that you're sick of feeling ashamed. You know that you want to feel horny and you want to have awesome sex and you want to have pleasure, but you're really fed up of this, but you don't know what beliefs or what you've been taught, what's been harmful and what's not. So it's really important to get educated, to look at what exactly these beliefs are and how they are harming you, especially around, I'm using quote marks in morals and sexuality, understanding about your sexual response cycle, understanding even the simple facts of that, of how harmful abstinence only sex education messages are and what effect they have on people. And also it's getting community that are different, being around different people, especially if you live in that community, a community that's very sex negative, if you come from it, simply being around different people who can challenge that perspective. And that's why it's tricky if you're still in a very conservative or, or religious environment where they don't encourage you to mix with, I say, worldly people or people not from that. And that's why often people who are, I mean, again, this it's 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 a grey zone because some people are still in very religious communities, but they're quite they're they're allowed to they're quite happy to make friends with and socialize with other people. But also learning how to change those messages, it's continuing to give yourself permission. And if you can't do that for yourself, having somebody else give you permission or lend you some permission until you can give it to yourself that my sexuality is beautiful. My sexuality is sacred. My body is beautiful just as, just as it is. My body is something wonderful to be nourished and cherished. And it's mine to do with what I please. My body does not belong to God. It does not belong to my future husband or wife. It belongs to me. And I get to do what I choose with it. And there is no sin in anything that I choose to do with my body that does not harm anybody else. And I wonder, it's just that small, simple shift of there is no sin in my body. My body is wonderful. It's beautiful. It's sacred. And even just that, the switch of my sexuality, my pleasure, my orgasms, they're secret and also they're neutral in that it's just a normal bodily response. The more I can embrace that it's neutral, it's natural. And the only sin, quote unquote, is when I'm trying to cause or causing harm to somebody else that can be a huge paradigm shift, especially when in purity culture and a lot of faith cultures, it's, you know, there's a big emphasis on sexual sin and what is sexual sin, which again is why it's so important to get educated, learn basic facts about sexual diversity and sexual orientation, about the clitoris and the penis and the role of orgasms and you know, sex and society, because then you start to really challenge, why, why is somebody calling that a sin? That's absolutely ridiculous. But you do find that the more you start to question these, the things you were taught, you then start to question the other things you were taught that weren't about sexuality. And you learn to start questioning the people in authority and are they really having, do they deserve to be put in positions of authority? A huge part also of faith deconstruction is, or any kind of religious deconstruction with sexuality or not, is learning to trust your own judgment. And that is such a simple 
and critical and yet very difficult step for people to take. What a beautiful kind of like guideline that you provided us. I love that you talked about starting with education and exploring mm-hmm. kind of other ways of looking at concepts. And for people like listening to podcasts from different groups can be part of it, reading about sexuality could be part of it. And also like any kind of trauma treatment that you talked about as a community is a, here mm-hmm. that's a big part of it, kind of exposing yourself to other people that they are experiencing what you're experiencing and they're loving and they're wonderful people. And if they, uh, <laughs> they, they love sex, they're, they're wonderful people. They're not these sinful, evil people. No, <laughs> it's, it's not. It's, you know, I think there's a big misconception and this is a big problem with purity culture or any kind of very sex, sexually repressive, whether it's a culture or community or religion. And there's lots of places we can think of is that it's so like, if you dare step outside this very strict idea of sex, you're going to fall into some mass orgy with like hundreds of people. And it's like, it's either or. It's like either you are completely pure and holy and keep yourself to yourself and keep yourself clean and godly or whatever and put a lid on it. Or you just like fall into this mass debauched orgy of sin. <laughs> you know, it, it, do you see that? It's like this, this com- mm. these complete polar op- these complete extremes. And this is what we were taught. And it's interesting because Josh Harris shared something on his Instagram the other day about the parallels between purity culture and hookup culture. And, you know, I don't like the idea of judging people for having casual sex at all. But there is a certain ring to it where it's like they're two sides of the same coin, where it's either you just have sex with anybody and everything because you think you should, or you don't have sex with anybody. And it's, it's, again, it's this shoulding and this that somehow your sexuality and who you share your body with is somehow intrinsically tied into your morals and your values, which when we really pick that apart is really toxic, really, really toxic. I remember like there's a TV presenter in the UK and, you know, lots of like tabloid newspapers and, and talk show hosts like to talk about morals. And mm-hmm. isn't it interesting, whenever they talk about morals in a very shouty voice, it's always around sexuality and sexual behavior. Always. That is accurate. <laughs> it's, it's like, I think it's translatable in all cultures. Oh, it's like, you have no morals. Well, I think my morals are good, but I don't believe in hurting people and I believe in doing good by people. No, you just can't keep your legs shut or whatever. It's, it's, and I'm saying that very crudely, but that's basically what they're saying, that somehow because you are in, in indulging or engaging in sexual behavior or activity with more than one person who is not your spouse, that therefore there's something morally wrong with you. And it just, that, that now gives me the squicks. It, give, it makes me feel very icky. Well, and you're right that I think when we, you start examining these messages, when you allow yourself to have some space between those, those ideologies and who you are, you get to see that, okay, these are all scared uh, kind of strategy to keep people kind of hooked on these ideologies. Obviously not all religions are negative, but I, I know that there are some commonalities on, on the forms of different kind of religions that they want to say, okay, if you're not doing this, then you cannot be part of this community and you're a bad person 
yeah it's um i remember like i i still follow a lot of stuff on social media from either ex-evangelicals which are people who identify as ex-evangelical or even progressive christians i like following progressive christians because they are generally very lgbt inclusive they're generally very sex positive and it's now i know i have lots of amazing colleagues who are working with sex positive christianity and that is the direction it needs to go in. But there's still this judgment of, well, if you're doing this, then you're therefore not a Christian or you're not a Muslim or you're not this. It's, it's a real judgment that your sexual behavior defines your relationship with God, however you define it, right. which I think is very toxic and problematic. Absolutely, yes. And who gets to decide on that? Tell us if the, this message, I bet it's resonated many of our listeners. We have a big community of listeners that they want to lean into their kind of more healthier sexual self and pleasure but they're coming in from a conservative background. So if your mm. message, and I'm sure it resonates with them, how can they get a hold of you if they want to work with you? So you can find me on my website, which is lucyrowitz.com, L-U-C-Y-R-O-W-E-T-T. You can join my Facebook group, which is called The Intimately Empowered Woman. Uh, find me on Instagram, which is at Juice and Jasmine. I need to change that name, like Juice, like Orange Juice and Jasmine. My name is not Jasmine. I'm also my Facebook page as well. I do have two links which I can send out as well, which I have a six-part free audio series on mastering sexual communication. Yeah, connect with me that way. Excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for sharing your story. And it was lovely to get to know you. Thank you so much, Nazanin. Thank you for having me on the show. I hope you found our conversation meaningful and you were able to get some ideas on how to challenge the sex negative messages that you've received from perhaps your religion, your culture, your family. And I personally find it very vulnerable when I talk about my personal sexual experiences. And I believe it was very brave of Lucy to share her story with us. And I'm very grateful for that. As always, I wanted to ask you guys to write us a review in iTunes teachers. If you have been enjoying listening to this podcast, it means the world to me because it help us to rank higher in these platforms and we will be able to reach a broader audience and I will be very grateful for that. Thank you so much for listening and I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com. Please be advised that information presented on this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health provider.